To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. A bit of a break from caucus news. We're talking about health insurance, taxes, water shortages, and Roro. Stick around to find out what that is. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Washington, D.C., I'm Kimberly Adams in for Kai Rizdal. It's Monday, January 15th. Good to have you along on this day, remembering the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. If you're looking to buy a health plan this year through the Affordable Care Act, open enrollment ends tomorrow on the federal marketplace and in most states. Already, it's been a record year for signups, according to a new analysis from One Health Policy Group. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. More than 20 million people have signed up for ACA coverage on the marketplaces so far. This is almost double the number of people who were signed up just a few years ago. Cynthia Cox at KFF says in 2020, about 11 million people enrolled. That number has grown steadily since the pandemic hit. For this year, it's shot up by more than 4 million. One big reason for the increase? During the pandemic, states were prohibited from disenrolling people from Medicaid. That ended in 2023. And when millions of people lost Medicaid coverage, many found their way to the marketplaces to buy it. Vivian Ho at Rice University says ACA plans have also gotten a lot more affordable in the last few years, thanks to more generous pandemic-era subsidies that are still in place. There's more knowledge filtering out about that as we go month by month. You know, it's sort of people talk with other people and say, oh, you know, have another look. And when people do look, she says, many find they're eligible for free or low-cost coverage. The Biden administration has also increased the number of navigators that help people who've never bought insurance. Which has also helped get more people signed up. Ho says the numbers are encouraging, but... What I'm waiting to see is after this is all over, do we actually have a net increase in percentage of Americans insured? Or will this big increase in ACA coverage be offset by all the people who lose insurance through Medicaid? I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Throughout the last few years, the Biden administration has been pushing several programs meant to make it easier for business owners to get loans, in particular, business owners of color. Many of the programs are aimed at making more funding available for community banks and credit unions that serve underprivileged groups. That said, the overall lending environment has tightened up over the last couple of years. And as Marketplace's Justin Ho reports, that's made it especially hard for people of color to get the funding they need for their businesses. 
As an accountant that works with small businesses, Nicole Davis, the owner of the Atlanta-based Butler Davis Tax and Accounting, says her black business owner clients typically have a harder time qualifying for loans, often because of wealth. People of color, we just didn't have the assets or resources that were passed from generation to generation to kind of lift up our businesses. People with less wealth are having an even harder time affording loans now because of rising interest rates. And that can be a challenge for lenders like Carver Financial Corporation in Alabama and Georgia, which focuses on lending to underprivileged groups. Robert James II is the CEO. We're taking additional risks because we're making loans into lower wealth communities. So James has been tapping federal programs, including the Emergency Capital Investment Program and the State Small Business Credit Initiative. Those are designed to reduce risk for lenders like him by providing a bigger pool of money to lend out. So that we can confidently extend it in a situation where it might be a little shakier with the borrower in terms of their ability to repay. Thing is, interest rates are still high. Brett Theodos with the Urban Institute says while these programs can help business owners get loans, they can't necessarily make them more affordable. Almost all of them are working in a way that helps mitigate risk, not in a way that fundamentally drives down interest rate costs and debt burdens. Theodos says the government could help to buy down interest rates, but Congress would have to sign off. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Wall Street today closed for the holiday, but we'll have other details for you when we do the numbers. The opioid epidemic has led to hundreds of thousands of overdose deaths. Now, state and local governments are beginning to receive the first parts of $50 billion in settlement money. And those in charge of distributing that money are getting the hard sell on what to do with it. Anere Patani is a senior correspondent with KFF Health News and wrote about this. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's say that I'm a state official involved in distributing some of this money. What does my email inbox look like these days? It is full of people asking you to have a brief call, to meet for a short time. They can tell you about their new product then and how it relates to the opioid crisis and how it's going to prevent addiction or save lives or help them turn around the tide of this epidemic. There is just so much marketing going at these state and local officials who are in charge of the money right now. And not just an email. I saw in your piece that they're putting advertisements in, you know, like newsletters and magazines targeted at county, state and county officials. Yeah, they're going wherever their audience is. So they're trying to do whatever they can to kind of get on folks's radar and say, here's an opportunity. You have this money coming. You could spend it on our product. Give me a couple of examples of the sort of products that jumped out to you that were being advertised in this way. So one that really caught my attention is a product called Ebola Wrap. It is a device for law enforcement officers. You press a button and it shoots out this Kevlar tether uh, that can sort of fly through the air and wrap around someone's body as a way to detain them. And they have sent out, we've obtained through public records requests and other means, emails to different police departments with sort of like a two-page Q&A document about how the opioid settlement funds can be used to buy this product. 
a lot of people, when I just describe the device to them, have said to me, how does that address the opioid crisis? And I think the marketing is not that different. Whenever governments have pots of money, there are companies that are you know, asking them to put it towards their products. I think why people have a particularly bad reaction to this sometimes, particularly you know, individuals who have lost loved ones to the opioid crisis, they feel like the opioid crisis was created by corporations that got greedy, that got you know, so focused on the money and profits that they lost sight of being responsible or of what their products were doing. And so there's a particular concern just with this idea of we got this money because of corporate wrongdoing. Should it be going to corporations again? Are there rules in place for, for how this money can be used or at least guidance? Yes. So most of the settlement agreements now, I say most because there are different agreements with different companies, but the majority of them say that at least 85% of the money a state receives has to be used for the term is opioid remediation, which is basically a fancy way of saying things related to addiction and and overdoses. So preventing addiction, uh, helping with treatment, recovery. Of course, there is some interpretability with that. And, you know, that's where we're seeing some confusion and contention. And it's really an open question, depending on how each locality uh, interprets this guidance of what qualifies as opioid remediation. You say in your piece that there's a precedent for this moment with the big tobacco settlements. What do you think we can learn from how that money was distributed and, and spent? The tobacco settlement is a cautionary tale. Most of that money that came from cigarette companies did not go to anti-smoking efforts. In fact, there are statistics that show about 3% of the annual payouts a year go to anti-smoking, smoking prevention work. The rest of it has been used on anything and everything you can imagine. Uh, And it's not to say it's all bad, but it's not necessarily what it was intended for. There has been money that's gone to building uh, new schools and uh, paving roads and corporate tax breaks. And in the case of North Carolina, South Carolina, subsidizing tobacco farmers. That history, a lot of people bring up because they don't want to see the same thing happen with the opioid settlement funds. This money is here to address the addiction crisis, which is ongoing. We have record numbers of people dying of overdose deaths in the past several years in this country. So I think people really want to make sure the money is going to address the problem that is so urgent and so uh, immediate. Aneri Patani with KFF Health News. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about how opioid settlement money is being spent in your area, opioidsettlementtracker.com is one resource, or you can check in with your own county commissioners or local representatives. While much of the country is dealing with rain and snow, we are more than 20 years into a mega drought in the American Southwest. For this season of our podcast, How We Survive, Marketplace's Amy Scott spoke to a couple in rural Arizona who spent months without affordable running water. 
The first sign that something is amiss at Lee Harris's house is the plastic bottles lined up outside the front door, dozens of them. So, as you can see, we have a price to pay for living in paradise. A fit blonde woman in an arcade fire t-shirt comes out to greet us. They have to promise me to not think untoward of us because we've been literally camping in this house uh, for six months now with no real running water. It's June, and inside there are more bottles all over the tile floor, which Lee admits hasn't been cleaned in a while. We do our best. We can't wash the floors or do things that normal water. You, you don't really think about how you use water on an everyday basis when it's just flowing from taps. She could turn on the taps and clean water would come out, but at a price Lee can no longer afford. Because here in Rio Verde Foothills, an unincorporated community outside Scottsdale, Arizona, Lee and her husband, Frank Avril, are among hundreds of people whose homes aren't connected to a water utility and don't have wells. Instead, they rely on hauled water, water they used to buy from the city of Scottsdale and have delivered in big trucks to an underground tank at their house. But back in January, as part of a plan to address the ongoing drought, Scottsdale announced, We will no longer allow anyone who is not a Scottsdale resident or business to buy any more water from our standpipe, and they were definitive about it. People living on hauled water would have to buy it somewhere else. The water haulers now had to drive hours away to fill up. And for Lee and Frank, the price jumped from about $130 every six weeks or so for a full tank to more than $500. Lee and Frank are both semi-retired. She's 63 and works at an assisted living facility. Frank, who's 70, at a grocery store. Spending $500 to get one tank of water delivered is just outside of our budget. To get by, they've been living on water borrowed from work or friends' houses, eating packaged soups and rice, things that don't use water. We use whatever you can stick in a microwave and not add anything to and collecting rainwater to flush their toilets. That's what we saw stored in all those bottles outside. It takes about two gallons to flush a toilet, and we go ahead and put it into the tank uh, behind the toilet. So here you go. Um, anything to stay in our house, right? You've got to do what you got to do. I mean, some people might hear this and say, well, why don't they leave? I mean, if you were to try to sell this house, would you be able to? No. I mean, we could probably sell it for maybe a, a quarter of what's it, what it's worth. But for my husband and I, this is everything we have. Over the hot, dry summer, there wasn't much rain. In early August, I went back to see Lee and Frank. By this point, it had been eight months, and their rainwater was running out. We were getting pretty worried because one by one, we were emptying our tanks just to be able to flush our toilets. But finally, a solution was in sight. The community worked out a deal to buy water from a private company and use Scottsdale's infrastructure to deliver it to Rio Verde Foothills. In late October, Lee sent me a voice memo. 
The truck is just about to turn onto our property, coming down the driveway. This is massively exciting. <laughs> um, honey, water delivery trucks here. More than nine months after Scottsdale shut them off, the residents of Rio Verde Foothills were finally able to access their new supply of water. <laughs> Yoo-hoo, we got water! It doesn't mean a complete return to normal. Lee and Frock are still paying more than twice what they used to for water, and the deal is temporary. Long-term, the community will have to help pay for a new standpipe and processing plant. Lee estimates it'll take 20 years to pay off their $18,000 share. With all these costs, she and Frank have agreed they can only afford to stay in the house as long as they're physically able to keep working. And they plan to keep collecting rainwater. They've installed a filtration system so they can drink it, too. In Rio Verde Foothills, Arizona, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. You can hear the entire season of How We Survive out now on the platform of your choice. Coming up, a shortage in the Southeast. Our population continues to grow every year, but the growth isn't really with the workforce. But first, let's do the numbers. Markets are closed today in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the only federal holiday designated as a national day of service. The Census Bureau and AmeriCorps run the numbers on volunteering in the U.S. every two years. According to the latest numbers from 2021, more than 60 million Americans, just over 23 percent, volunteered with organizations that year. If you consider informal volunteering, like just helping out a neighbor, maybe shoveling snow for free, that jumps up to 51%. You're listening to Marketplace. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kimberly Adams. The 2024 tax season is upon us. You've probably started getting tax documents in your email and physical mailbox. Ashley Ebeling is a personal finance reporter for The Wall Street Journal and wrote about what changes may affect your taxes this year. So, Ashley, tell us what's going on with our tax brackets this year. So the tax brackets are adjusted for inflation. And since we've seen inflation they're wider this year. And that means you can actually have more income before you reach a higher bracket and higher associated rate. So it just gives a little bit more room as people's incomes hopefully go up with inflation that they're staying at that same tax rate and they're not getting bumped up into the next bracket. Can you give an example of of who might see their 
um, taxes change because of this? Well, you could compare your 2023 bracket to the 2024 bracket. And the most basic example is income up to $11,000 was assessed at the 10% rate for 2023. And then next year would go up to 11600 So you mentioned that the tax brackets uh, are adjusted for inflation. But in your piece uh, about this, you mentioned that inflation adjustment hasn't always been calculated the way that it is today. It changed to a slower method in 2017. Can you explain that? So that's true. It was in 2017, Congress switched to the slower method of inflation adjustments. And that just means that that you're not that the brackets aren't going up as much as they used to. And the Joint Committee on Taxation actually projected that that change would cost Americans one hundred thirty three billion dollars over a decade, that they'd be paying that much more in taxes. Um. When it comes to tax rates, the rates that we have now, how locked in are they as opposed to moving around over the course of the years? So the current rates, that's the 10 percent up to the 37 percent, those rates were set by the 2017 tax overhaul, and they'll expire at the end of 2025. The rates only change if Congress changes them. The brackets, on the other hand, the brackets, too, the brackets are set by Congress, but what changes every year are these inflation adjustments to the brackets to try to keep taxpayers somewhat in the same place where they were the year before. So uh, the IRS came out with uh, the tax filing opening date. What overall are some of the big trends and changes that you think regular folks should be looking out for when it comes to doing their taxes this year? So the big thing thing to know is January 29th is the filing season start date when individuals can file their return. Um, the due date for most of the nation is April 15th. You always have to remember that's not just the due date to file, but it's the due date to pay. So that's even if you request an extension until October 15th, you still need to pay by April 15th, at least a good faith estimate. For Maine and Massachusetts, because of state holidays, their due date is April 17th. Okay. Ashley Ebeling is a personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much. Thank you. The world of maritime shipping has no shortage of jargon. Stevedores are the dock workers who load and unload cargo. And then there is row-row, short for roll-on, roll-off. It's cargo on wheels, mostly motor vehicles. Right now, the port of Baltimore is the busiest place for row-row in the U.S., but it's facing some stiff competition down south. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Benjamin Payne reports. A Nissan Rogue rumbles down a wooden ramp, exiting the cargo bay of a massive ship by the name of Neptune Ace. Normally, you wouldn't want to hear any squeaking from a brand new car, but in this case, no need to worry. It just comes from a protective covering around the wheel. 
Neptune Ace is basically a floating parking garage. This SUV is one of about 700,000 vehicles in 2023 to pass through the Port of Brunswick in rural Glynn County, Georgia. Population, 85,000. We're going to be all in to take the Georgia Ports Authority from the Southeast Gateway to a national gateway. That's Griff Lynch, president of the Georgia Ports Authority, speaking in October before a packed conference hall of business leaders. Down in Brunswick, we have the single largest roll-roll facility, roll-on, roll-off facility in the nation. It's not the busiest. It will be. That's my promise. Within five years, he says. Brunswick is currently the second busiest row-row port in the nation and only getting busier. In its last fiscal year, it saw 18% more cargo than the year prior. So what explains the growth? The number one reason, Lynch tells me later on. The population base is growing. It's growing in the southeast faster than any other place in the U.S. And then secondly, we have an increased manufacturing base. Companies like Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo. He also points to Hyundai, which in nearby Bryan County is building a massive $7.6 billion electric vehicle and battery plant, the largest economic development project in Georgia's history. Another factor driving growth at the Port of Brunswick has more to do with what isn't there as opposed to what is. Unlike the Port of Baltimore, which is locked in by the rest of the city, the Port of Brunswick is in a spacious, unincorporated part of the county. And what that allows for... There's a very quick access to the interstate to head north and south from Brunswick. Susan Gardner is vice president of operations at the Georgia Ports Authority. We also have the rail connectivity there, so I feel like the connection with the uh, railroads as well as the connection to the interstate makes it a very fluid port to import and export out of for autos, and that's one of the reasons that our customers actually want to be there. Yet another advantage has to do with what's going on about an hour's drive north. That's a heavy load carrier called Big Lift Baffin, hauling four massive cranes to the port of Savannah. It's among the nation's busiest container shipping ports. Peter Hall is a professor of urban studies at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, where he researches ports. He says there's been a shift in manufacturing to Southeast Asia. That favors East Coast ports in the U.S. That has a knock-on effect for the, for the row traffic. Since Georgia's container shipping traffic goes through Savannah, Brunswick can focus on Roro. But it's not all smooth sailing, in part due to Glynn County's aging demographics. Our population continues to grow every year, but the growth isn't really with the workforce. Don Asdell is president of International Auto Processing. The company puts the finishing touches on many vehicles arriving at the Port of Brunswick. This area has a lot of people moving here. They're retirees. They're not part of the active workforce. So our challenge is trying to get people coming out of the local school system to want to stay here as opposed to moving away to larger cities like Atlanta. Labor demand is exceeding labor supply in Brunswick. So it's no wonder that Asdell says his company hasn't laid off any workers in the eight years he's been here. Right now, the port can handle up to three railroad ships at once. A fourth berth is in the works and should be up and running by 2026. In Brunswick, Georgia, I'm Benjamin Payne for Marketplace. A little tight for time today, so no final note on the way out, but a happy MLK Day to all. Our daily production team includes Andy Corbin, Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sarah Leeson, Sean McHenry, and Sophia Terenzio. And I'm Kimberly Adams. We will see you tomorrow. This is APM.
Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.